1: Hello, everyone, and bienvenue. This is your host, Gary. Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Robert Bazanko about France in the Cold War. Before we dive into that, I would like to recommend another podcast that complements this episode, Assassinations Podcast. Each series of Assassinations Podcast deals with a different famous assassination. There are already episodes on Salvador Allende and Patrice Lumumba, two victims of high-level Cold War politics. But, if you want something farther in the past, there's an episode on Mary, Queen of Scots, who was married in the notre dame de Paris Cathedral and briefly was Queen of France, and all of the intrigues she faced due to religious tensions in Europe can be found in their series. Every era has its high-profile murder, and none tells them better than Assassinations podcast so be sure to check them out. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Dr. Robert Bezanko. Since graduating from Ohio State University, he has written or edited three books on the Vietnam War and the American home front during this period. His book, *Masters of War: Military Descent and Politics in the Vietnam Era*, was published by Cambridge University Press and won the Stuart L. Bernath Prize awarded by the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. I can personally vouch for the book, as Masters of War is one of the finest books I have ever read on Vietnam, as it is fantastically detailed, yet written so clearly that anyone can understand it. Dr. Bozanko's companion book, Vietnam and the Transformation of American Life, is another fantastic work and one of the best books available on the American home front during the war. Today, we talk about France and its role in the Cold War. The Cold War is often depicted as a struggle between the democratic capitalist West, led by the United States, against the totalitarian communist Soviet Union, led by Russia. The truth is that the Cold War was far more nuanced. Probably the most important internal problem the US-led coalition faced was France. After World War II, Britain, Italy, West Germany, Canada, and much of the Western world accepted that the United States was their leader due to its enormous economy, military, and technological supremacy. France, especially under Charles de Gaulle, refused to accept that they were a secondary power. Unlike the British, who gave up their colonies with relatively little bloodshed, the French government would fight bloody wars in Indochina and Algeria that claimed the lives of millions as France refused to give up its empire. Furthermore, France routinely rebuked U.S.-led policies to create a global economic and political unit to counter the Soviet bloc. Just as Russia and China had their own internal struggle, so too did the United States and France vehemently struggle against each other as France refused to be subordinate to the new global superpower. I hope you enjoyed this informative and highly entertaining conversation I had with one of America's leading scholars on the topic. Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Giraud. France and America's Cold War with Dr. Robert Bazanko. First of all, I want to say thank you very much, Professor Bazanko, for uh, offering your time for this podcast. So, today uh, we're going to be talking about the United States and France during the Cold War. And I think one thing which our listeners may not uh, be aware of, at least for those who are more casually into history, is that France and the United States were not one cohesive unit during the Cold War. Is that right to say?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, U.S.-French relations during the war weren't great. Um, During the occupation of Germany, uh, the United States had had way more issues, many more issues with the French than they did with even the Soviet Union. I mean, it's obviously very controversial to give France an occupation zone anyway in Germany. And uh, so the U.S. and the French were, were quite often at loggerheads over you know, kind of the administration of the, the German zone there. And eventually, you know, they unified it. But, uh, and then, um, you know, but France was important to the United States because France and Italy both, all over Europe actually, but France and Italy in particular had legitimate leftist political parties, which were doing quite well in democratic elections. And that really terrified the Americans. So you had like, a, who was it, De Blum, I think, in France was a socialist, and Toyati in Italy. And so immediately the United States was really kind of, you know, kind of alarmed. That this democratic left had emerged and was doing quite well in elections, so uh, very early on, like uh, with regard to France, the United States began sending um, like CIA, well OSS or CIA teams later, and then actually uh, American unions, because you know the French left was so strongly centered in the CGT, American unions began to send representatives with a lot of money, briefcases of money over, mm-hmm. to create alternatives to the communist unions, and did quite a, quite an effective job of it. I mean, so the the Americans and the French, yes, yeah, started off. Because of the, the fear of the left, you know, on, on bad terms, and then after that, um, had a lot of problems with de Gaulle because the U.S. thought France's days were past, and I think you know that they they thought they they thought the French were acting like they were still, you know, had these this grandeur and they were a global power, and the Americans didn't think that, and obviously in Vietnam that became a, a huge issue. So yeah, they, there was always a great deal of acrimony, um, you know, a good. A, the key point to World War II, obviously, was defeating the Germans. You know, Obviously, everybody agreed to that. After that, secondarily, but very, very crucially important, not really that far behind, was breaking up all these um, European empires, the British and the French you know, in particular, so that these places would now be part of this kind of global capitalist market because you know, these, these are strict old, old-fashioned empires which are closed off and they have their own trading system and they trade in different currencies and things like that. So, um, so, so let's yeah. talk
1: about that a moment, because uh, before World War II even ended, the United States held numerous meetings on how the world would be uh, run, right. uh, meetings such as Bretton Woods obviously being an important one. So what post-war plans would eventually lead to tensions between the United States and France?
0: I mean, this is clearly, a, 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 one could argue after World War I, the United States had attained global power because of, it had loaned so much money out. But the American role in World War I wasn't that great. World War II was a different story. So the Americans you know, saw this as the, the ultimate transition, the final transition of power from old Europe to, to this new America. And, um, and obviously the Europeans had a different conception of it. The Americans want to create this new global world with institutions like Bretton Woods. Uh, which will include Britain and France. I mean, Britain and France is still incredibly important to the United States economically. It's America's main partner for, for trade and for investment, and there's obviously very close cultural bonds that have you know existed for, for centuries already. So it wasn't like they were trying to cut the British and the French out or anything like that. But clearly the United States saw itself as, as the global leader in these institutions now and expected everybody to kind of follow American lead. So when they created these institutions, they were based on you know, kind of certain, you know, specific American criteria, you know, private ownership of public utilities and, um, you know, rules for investment and things like that, and, and and Europe was organized differently, the European economy was organized differently, there were still kind of relics of the old uh, kind of uh, bourgeois economy, there's a, a great book by guy named Charles Mayer called Recasting Bourgeois Europe, which talks about the interwar period and how um, a lot of these new capitalists who were involved in things like finance and global trade were trying to change all of these european countries and he speaks about France as well so this has already been you know kind of taking place in France where these new people who are involved in like these global things like you know finance and investment and trade and you know kind of global commerce and currency and things like that are starting to take power inside France away from the, the older elite who tended to be based on things like land or kind of national industries or things like that. So yeah. that's already going on.
1: Yeah, there is a really fascinating point how, you know, first the Americans came into France with troops, and then you had, what was it, 50,000 uh, technicians related to mm. French factories that came in and tried to revolutionize France with the washing machine yeah. and all that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, actually, there's a good book on that. Uh, what's uh, Silvia de Grazia, uh, oh, Irresistible Empire. And, and the U.S. does that, and we, you know... Well, you've heard me talk about that before, you know, where you use dollars instead of coercion. And clearly that was the case with France. Now, the American version of it is the French saw these Americans, you know, the way they made cars, the way they made washing machines and all that. And they were like, thought, oh, you know, what are we, we've, we're so far behind, we need to start doing it like this. So in the American version, you often hear that the French were just grateful for, for the U.S. to come in and, and, and show them this new way of, of having this kind of global economy. Uh, but that's really important there, this kind of transition away. And so the United States, you know, sees itself as as the global leader, and it is. It's the biggest economy by far. World War II is just immense. And the United States, as of World War I, wasn't affected the way Europe was during the war. You know, the war wasn't fought in the United States. The U.S. didn't have the kind of physical destruction. So it created these institutions like, you know, the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, and it created the dollar as a global currency, which is really going to be a, an issue with France intermittently for the next 20 or 30 years at a level that, you know, I'm not I'm not an economist, so I can kind of understand it on a fairly simplistic level, but it's a major problem because uh, the French were always, always thought the Americans were trying to use that dollar to kind of gain control over French industry by, you know, not not allowing the French to, you know, uh, change rates, to adjust rates or anything like that because it was a fixed system. So, yeah, there's, there's a great deal of tension there. There's a great deal of tension over... Uh, Um, NATO forces obviously. Uh, De Gaulle pulls the military out of NATO in in 1966. De Gaulle didn't want uh, Britain joining the European market. So yeah, uh, the Americans and the French had always had an acrimonious relationship. So, you know, in more contemporary times when, you know, like the attack after uh, the Iraq War, you know, freedom fries and all that kind of stuff fits into a much larger pattern. you know, and the and and the Americans aren't really aware of you know kind of France and the US have been long term allies and you know from the from the time of the War for Independence where France the French Navy played a huge role. You know,
1: so we mentioned a couple of these: uh, the IMF, yeah. uh, NATO, and essentially what America's plan was, which was to create this Western capitalist bloc, right. ostensibly democratic as well. Yeah, no, although, sure, no, absolutely, yeah. So, how then did France resist that? Could um,
0: they? I mean, to some extent, you, you can only resist so much because France received Marshall Plan aid. France got money from the Bretton Woods institutions, and you didn't have to pay it back. You know, the United States canceled some World War One loans and made new loans and things like that. So, the Americans were able to use this this financial power, you know, to uh, to to kind of make France malleable. Um, you know, I think I think you know uh, the United States had created this kind of new system for Europe, and the European countries kind of had to go along. They had no choice. Um, I don't think the British were terribly happy about it, but clearly, publicly, there was more, far more resistance from from Paris than from London, um, and especially you know on issues like colonial issues like Vietnam, especially. Um, or Suez, which is a, a, obviously a major point of contention. I mean, the Americans thought that the French were just kind of stuck in this old way of thinking, this old imperial regime, and you just couldn't do that anymore. And so there was a you know, great deal of disdain. And I mean, Vietnam is particularly acute because the Americans did not want the French to go back in. They just thought, you know, you're wasting your time there. We need your help in Europe. You know, the Soviet Union is the only problem we want to deal with right now. We don't, we don't really care about some small country in, in Indochina. And so the Americans and the French were, were at loggerheads. But, I mean, in terms of the economic penetration of France, there's not a whole lot they can do. I don't know what the trade data is and how many American companies went there or, or anything like that. But I do know that, you know, the Amer- in terms of those aid programs, France got like $2.9 billion from the Marshall Plan, which was a grant. Um, and, you know, those always came attached with caveats, like offset programs where you have to, you know, kind of put dollars away to kind of create a reserve or you have to purchase goods back from the United States. And nobody was terribly happy about that, but they understood those were the rules of the game, the way it was being played now in this new world. Um, But I think, you know, the biggest thing was that the United States had clearly superseded uh, Britain and France especially. Uh, You know, Germany was defeated, but but, uh, the United States had superseded Europe now as this kind of global power and was going to tell people what to do in this new system. And, you know, and that's going to really, I think, the biggest issues, I think, are colonial issues because... um, you know, breaking up these empires is critical, breaking up these blocks where you have exclusive trading rights to, uh, you know, India or Egypt if you're Britain or or Indochina uh, if you're uh, France is really crucial. Um, You know, they need to have these places open so that other countries, especially Japan and Asia, can can get in there and, and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, rebuild their own economies after World War II.
1: So on that note, let's get into Indochina, since that is uh, your specialty. Well, Vietnam, I suppose. But uh, in any case, so on the surface, I think people have a basic understanding that it was a conflict between an imperial power and a colonized people. Would you like to give our listeners any more nuance? Yeah, I mean, the the
0: French initially, I think uh, the first French expedition came around 1858 or something like that, and within five or ten years um, the French were in control, not just of all the regions of Vietnam, but but Cambodia and Laos as well, which they called French Indochina. It's kind of funny. They went in there, and, and these are kind of old monarchical systems, and they're really not developed. So um, even though you have a monarch, at the village level, people really don't know what the monarch is telling them to do because there's really no communication. So these people are kind of living in this very traditional society. And the French came in and thought, oh, we need to bring you all these great liberal values, you know, like democracy and this and that. And essentially by doing that, they created even more state control because these folks were used to just kind of doing their own thing and the king left them alone and maybe they paid taxes, maybe maybe they didn't. Um, the the Vietnamese resisted. I mean, the Vietnamese didn't want the French there. There's resistance very early on from, from uh, you know, the, the uh, late 1800s. You start to see uh, attacks on... Uh, um, you know, the French were invested heavily in things like uh, rubber and tin. Uh, and um, so there are, you know, initially you'll start to see that. Uh, the French instituted a very brutal labor regime uh, where, you know, people were, you know, kind of, you know, I, I hate using the slavery metaphor, but it was really a, a horrible labor system. And then a lot of people, a lot of the work came from Corvée labor. So you know, you're arrested or you can't pay your taxes or something like that. you got to work on public utilities. There was an elaborate tax system that the French imposed. There's a famous story uh, by a Vietnamese writer called Neo Tateau, and the, the title is When the Lights Put Out. But it's just this like kind of labyrinth and Kafka kind of thing where you have to pay a tax. Her husband was in jail or her brother-in-law was in jail. I can't remember why. And they paid a tax, and then the guy died in jail, so he'd pay a death tax. And then because she did, she only had coins on and not paper, she had to pay a transfer fee. And so that's kind of the way the, the, the Vietnamese looked at the French. they had here to tax us and make us work in these rubber plantations. In 1925, Michelin built, bought, and, and created the biggest rubber plantation in Indochina. Uh, so um, there's a great deal of animosity and this kind of patriotic fervor. Uh, in the early 1900s, the, the kind of the most famous Vietnamese was a poet named Phan Boi Chau. And um, you know he wrote about that. I I, uh, um, I love this. this is kind of a poem, but it's it, it's really telling because he wrote this in like 1904. 10,000 uh, Vietnamese can kill at least 100 Frenchmen. 1,000 Vietnamese can kill 10 Frenchmen. 100 Vietnamese can kill one Frenchman. In this way, four to five hundred thousand Vietnamese can wipe out four to five thousand Frenchmen. Those gray-eyed, heavily bearded people cannot live if Vietnam is to live. Hmm. So uh, they're already talking about you know this kind of you know kind of advanced. Uh, uh, resistance which is, you know, gonna gonna involve warfare. Um, and then people like Ho Chi Minh, who's very famous, you know, the kind of George Washington of Vietnam, studied under Fan Boi Chow, they knew Fan Boi Chow. A bunch of them actually went to Paris during World War One. So there's this huge expat community. Uh allegedly, I don't know if anybody's I I, I it's probably true, but allegedly uh, Ho Chi Minh rented a taxi, you know, went to Versailles and knocked on the door to try to get a meeting with Woodrow Wilson, you know. Uh, he would have been, I don't know, under 30 still at the time. Um, but then, you know, living in Paris, then he and a bunch of people who would become famous in the 60s, uh, Feng Dong and, and uh, Chongqing, Lijuan, uh, Fem- um Vanu and Zap, formed the indo Communist Party. And that was formed actually in, in Paris. Uh, these guys were members of the PCI even before that, the French Communist Party. So there's this long legacy of, of resentment and anger the Americans had no clue and didn't really care. You know, I don't think anyone in America, I don't know if ten people in America knew about French Indochina. Um, and about around the early 30s, the, the French forces, the Viet Minh was kind of the, the military wing of it, began, you know, kind of this war of resistance against the French. And the French re- responded pretty, pretty harshly. Um the, the best known military general in Vietnam, Van Nguyen, Zap. Uh, was a history teacher, actually, and his wife was arrested during these one of these sweeps in the early 30s and put in jail. She died in jail. And that's really what turned him into a, a revolutionary. And a lot of people had similar stories where, you know, the, somebody they knew was picked up in one of these sweeps and might have been tortured, might have been put in jail, <clears throat> maybe even died in jail or something like that. So inside Vietnam, there's a great deal of turmoil. And then when the war came, um, the, 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 the resistance against the French, you know, kind of increased uh, because you know, um, uh, France had fallen to Vichy, so, you know, the Vietnamese could now go to the free countries, or the Soviet Union, of course, because of the chinese communist, you know, movement, and so they began to kind of get some support as resistance fighters. You know, there are Americans, actually, who were there later in the, in the war, like in 1945, who were working with the Viet Minh. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, they were, um, the Viet Minh were rescuing, like, downed pilots and things like that, because they knew their way around. Wow. Uh, and so France is still in control, but then the Japanese came in and removed the French in 1945. And so the Vietnamese, 1944, I think. Uh, so the Vietnamese now are under the occupation of the Japanese rather than the French. It's very brutal. Like a million or two million people die from from famine in the next couple of years. But in the minds of the Vietnamese, the French are gone. You know, and so and then you know with the atomic bomb and all that stuff, the Japanese are gone too. So. In September of 1945, Ho Chi Minh went to Baodong, uh, Baodin Square in Hanoi, 500,000 people, and, and, he, and he declares independence, quoting from the American, independence, you know, the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these rights to be self-evident. All men are created equal by blah. Allegedly writes a couple letters to Harry Truman saying, you know, we have this independence movement. You know, we are communists, but we're a nationalist movement. We want to have good relationships with the United States, and no one ever acknowledged them.
1: Right, that seems to be a semi-common theme, because I believe the Philippines as well had uh, their uh, first president copied the Declaration of yeah, American Independence, yeah. but then things took a turn. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, you know,
0: you know, and for decades now, you know, America's reputation in the world is not all that great. But after World War II, I mean, these are the guys who beat the Nazis, right? And So a lot of countries, especially these emerging countries, saw that as, as the template, as the model. We want to be like the Americans, and um, so a lot of them reached out, and a lot of them had really, like, really kind of high opinions of, of the United States, not so much of the French. Um, but France, uh, even after Ho declared this independence, the French came back in. And um, this is apparently a time of great uh, animosity between the Americans and the French, uh, a, lot of, a lot of anger and resentment. Um, the Americans wanted France to just help them in Europe. You know they have they had a communist movement in their own country a socialist movement in their own country they don't need to be going into Vietnam it's not that important um, you know I don't know the French side of it as as well um, the stuff that people write in English basically it's about it's about the French Indochina war and the military aspects of it so inside France I'm not sure if there were other considerations in going why you know why go back to Indochina was it to to reclaim you know kind of things like rubber plantations or was it kind of you know this sense of grandeur you know we don't want to give up our empire
1: yeah if i can weigh in a little yeah, bit of my own uh, yeah. french expertise yeah. I mean, I'm sure they tried to justify it with the Mission Civilisatrice, right, right, yeah, yeah. which for those who don't know, uh, the Mission Civilisatrice uh, was the French idea that they were going to civilize the world. Um, so, Like I'm Manifest sure, Destiny in the United States. Kind of, yeah. but yeah, but it supposedly has a nicer face yeah, to it. Yeah. But um, so I think that was part of the justification. I think the other justification was economics, but... Personally, I think it was almost certainly about grandeur. That was all it was and maintaining their position as a world power because uh, from my own studies and my own knowledge of the French in Vietnam, essentially they only wanted to use Vietnam originally as a staging point to get access to the markets in China, and they tried to build numerous railroads to get from Vietnam into China, but the British were having none of that, and so after World War II, when there was the communist revolution, then that door finally gets shut. So, to a very large extent, Vietnam was not very profitable, and
0: that's really the case for the United States too, because you know a lot of times you talk about these kind of economic, you know, incentives or, or imperatives. Um, Vietnam, you know, they had some rubber plantations, they had some tin, tungsten, but no, there's nothing. It's not oil, or, right? Or, or anything like that, you know, some of the places where, you know, like United Fruit Company or, or Aramco, nothing like that at all. And the Americans actually saw Vietnam in the same way. To them, Vietnam was crucial to, to the restoration of Japan after World War II, you know, because the Americans wanted Japan to be this kind of solid, you know, rebuilt industrial country. And especially after the Chinese Revolution, you know, uh, when, when China went communist, Vietnam became very important, I think, for that reason. But, yeah, again, almost as a staging point, or as a partner with Japan, it, Vietnam itself didn't really mean that much. So when the French went back in, the Americans were just kind of perplexed and apoplectic. And there's a great deal of debate in the United States over what to do. I mean, there were Americans who wanted to essentially say, you know, kind of give France an ultimatum, like, we, you know, we'll cut aid or, you know, use leverage against them. Um, but uh, that didn't happen. Um, essentially, they thought, you know, we don't want to, piss them off. We don't want to get the French more angry because then they may not be so helpful in Europe, and that's really what we care about. And so with with some reluctance, actually, the Americans um, saw the French go back in uh, in 1946. And um, initially the French and, and Ho Chi Minh actually were, were negotiating. I think it was uh, uh, Paul Leclerc. I think Leclerc was the, the commander in charge of, of forces in Indochina at the time. And um, He and Ho actually got along pretty well. Hmm. Uh, Ho was being uh, attacked from other members of the Indo-Chinese left as a a sellout because he wanted to make a deal with France. Essentially, you know, we'll take autonomous status within the French Union with, you know, an eventual promise of of actual liberation. Uh, And he was being attacked for that. And he he has a great quote. Uh, uh, Excuse the profanity, but uh, he was afraid the Chinese were going to come in. which Traditionally, is Vietnam's greatest enemy. He said, I'd I prefer to sniff French shit for five years than eat Chinese shit for the next thousand. Right. So basically, he said we can deal with them. You know, he basically said the white man's days in Asia are dying out anyway. They're not going to be here that long. So he and he uh, uh, and uh, Leclerc and the French had an agreement in early 1946, the Fontainebleau Agreement, which would allow you know, the v- Vietnam was still in the French Union, uh, but it would have this kind of eventual liberation. Uh, the, the Vietnamese themselves weren't real happy about it. They thought Ho was a, a sellout. And then, you know, a, a lot of the French didn't really carry out the, the treaty that way either. So you had to renew a renewal of hostilities. And then in, I can't remember the precise date, but later in 1946, the French shelled uh, Haiphong. So I think it's in August of 1946, the French shelled Haiphong. And I can't remember what the, the uh, justification uh, for that was. I think it had something to do with trade or... Maybe the, the Viet Minh were getting aid. Uh, I think that might have been it, you know, because Haiphong was a major port. So maybe they said the Vietnamese were getting aid from the Russians. Or something. I don't remember. So they, they shelled Haiphong and killed like oh, 6,000 Vietnamese. And that's generally what we consider the, you know, the start of the, uh, the first Indochina War in 1946. Um, and it's kind of the classical, you know, it's guerrilla warfare versus this, you know, French. Uh, uh, these French forces. The French had a a massive uh, military infrastructure there. Um, I think they had, I mean, all told, uh, something like uh, over a million forces in in, in various... um, Oh, here we go. Uh, The French Union forces, which were French and Vietnamese, were over Mm 500,000 by the early 50s. It started about 70,000 in the early 1940s. The French Expeditionary Corps... Uh, was up to over 115,000 in 1947, and then um, later the French created something called the Vietnamese National Army, which had almost 400,000 troops in it. So the French and their, the, the Vietnamese who work with them, generally in the south, and the, the, uh, Vietnam has three different regions, Tonkin, Annam, and Cochin, China, and the French. Cochin, China is where Saigon is, so that's where the French were strongest, and that's where they had the most Vietnamese support, Vietnamese collaboration. And so, you know, if you look at all those units, you had about almost a million guys in uniform, a million combatants, and and ZAP and the Viet Minh had like three hundred thousand. So it's it's this classical, like you know, guerrilla war against this major European power. And uh, you know, I've read a bit on it, and I don't think that the the French really gave much thought to to the perils of that, you know, mm-hmm. fighting in in this environment against these guerrillas and who really despise you and want national liberation. And thought, you know, when they made that. Pronouncement for Declaration of Independence. They they thought they were free, so that's the the first Viet. i um, sorry, the first Indochina War broke out then in 1946, and um, the French just. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to make a joke about the French military performance. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really striking because you know on the surface. I mean, um, the chapter in my book that, that I showed you about it is why, and then in. In parentheses, I have not Vietnam because everyone said why Vietnam, and I why not Vietnam? You know, hmm. it's. Uh, I mean, this is happening all over the world. The stuff that's going on in Vietnam is happening everywhere. I mean, the British are in the process of trying to subdue India, and the Americans are, are, are uh, dealing in Iran. You know, there's a big confrontation in 1946, and then not long after that, you have Iran again, and you have uh, you know all these places going on. Venezuela, there's an oil crisis in Venezuela in the late 40s. So this stuff's going on all over the world. You know where these, these countries want liberation; they want to end their colonial colonial status, and the Europeans are fighting back. The Americans are actually, in that sense, anti-colonial, not really for any altruistic reasons. Although you, they use kind of the, the civilizing mission rhetoric as well on manifest destiny, want to bring them democracy and all that. Um, but um, it's basically because these places have some value, and I think the, the, a larger global system of investment and trade and commerce and, and manufacturing and things like that.
1: So let's talk about that for a moment because we've mentioned how the United States was in theory opposed to French involvement in Indochina. And yet, as you note in your book, the United States was funneling money to France, which was being put into the war. Do you want to explain? Why yeah, that? I mean, and the
0: amounts are really striking. Um, because the United States never cared about Vietnam, Indochina, it just never gave any thought to that. And starting in 1950, I mean, it's, it's a significant amount of money.
1: Right, 130 million dollars from Truman, which would be 1.37 billion today. Uh, not only that, but 1953, after they gave France a slap on the wrist, they approved an additional 785 million, or 7.47 billion in today's money.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's massive, and. I mean, it's even more striking because you're going, that's going to an area that was utterly inconsequential just a few years earlier. Right. I mean, it isn't like, you know, we're going to keep sending more money in because the problem's getting worse. It was like going from zero to, to 60 in three seconds, you know. Um, and it, you know, American historians, American scholars have, have still debated why the United States did it. And I do think to some degree it was because Vietnam was important in this kind of idea of restoring Japan you know, as, as this kind of frame, you know, bulwark in Asia. But a lot of it, which isn't terribly satisfying because you can't really put your hands on is is the idea of American credibility. You know, in the, in the, right after World War II, the U.S. is flying high, right? You know, despite the fact that, you know, the Red Army took the brunt of the German attack, the Americans were kind of seen as, as the victors in, in World War II. And so, you know, the Americans, and with these institutions like Bretton Woods and NATO, the Americans thought they could kind of just kind of get their way and so um, it becomes important within that context to stand up to somebody who challenges it, even if it's a small independence movement. And the same thing's happening in Malaysia, at the same time as Vietnam. Uh, so the Americans, there's this kind of credibility is on the line. You know, we can't allow our ally in Paris to to be, you know, kind of bogged down by this small, you know, inconsequential country. So we're going to do whatever we can in order to show the world, you know, don't mess with us. We will... We will take action against our enemies, and we will help our friends. And so I think to a large degree, uh, America's support of France comes from that kind of concept, which isn't terribly satisfying. But like I said, you know, people were talking about oil and this and that. You know, there's, that was kind of, there's a potential. There's, they're still talking about oil in Vietnam. There's still potential, you know, and in the, in the rubber and the tin and the tungsten. There's stuff there, you know, and I'm sure that's of some import. But um, it's real hard to make the case that the United States was trying to protect these economic interests, their French economic interests. So, I mean, in a sense, I think it is, you know, the Americans just didn't, especially in this early years after the Cold War. And a lot of this takes place, you know, with, with Korea going on, too. And you do see the Americans, actually, Americans would often make the case not to get involved in Vietnam because of Korea. So they took kind of the opposite message from it that the American, you know, a lot of the Americans and the French did. A lot of the American military people are saying yeah, we need to deal with Korea. We can't be messing with Vietnam, and so I think that's another reason why mostly it was money. You know, you had trickling, you know, trickle of advisors and things like that, but nothing significant. But yeah, but but that's seven hundred eighty-five million in nineteen in register. Interest—that's a staggering amount of money. You know, it may not sound like it, but like what you say was seven billion today. Yeah, that's a staggering amount of money for a country that was of very little consequence, very small country, um, and so and it, you know didn't help. It didn't work. Right. Um,
1: So on that note, I think there's so much to unpack there. One thing that I was just going to add that I didn't get a chance to earlier is that I think one of the main reasons tying into um, why France wanted to maintain Indochina has to do with the fact that if they gave up Indochina, then the entire rest of the empire could look at that and say, oh... France is weak, they're a paper tiger, we can get out too, most notably, of course, being Algeria. Algeria sure. Yeah, yeah, And then, so, in the case of the United States, perhaps this ties into what you're thinking, that the United States has to exert its influence everywhere because if a country... I mean, obviously Vietnam was not a rich country, but it was a very populous country. And so if you can have this one country going its own way, then that suddenly breaks up American hegemony. Is that sound Oh, right? no, absolutely,
0: you're absolutely right. I mean, and again, I think it speaks to that issue of credibility both in Paris and in Washington, D.C. You know, we have to show these, these little colonials that, that they, they're not going to mess with us. Right. You know, and in France, I mean they have three major things going on, you know, pretty much almost simultaneously in Indochina and, and Suez and you know, the bigger issue Egypt and, and, and Algeria. And so yeah, I think I think that does, you know, we you know, become a very important point. You know, if, if the Vietnamese if you know if if the world sees that the Vietnamese can do this, both to France and the United States, then all of these other small countries are going to be emboldened to take us on, and I mean, they're getting they're getting aid from the Soviet Union after 1949 from China. The, the amount, for instance, that the, the Vietnamese communists, the Vietnamese nationalists, you know, and it's a front movement, it really is a coalition movement, so I have no problem calling up communists because most people use that in a derisive way. I mean, they just, to me, they just are, it's the chinese Communist Party, but the amount of aid they got from, from um, you know, like the, the Soviet Union and China was really minimal compared to what the Americans were doing. Uh, first for the French and then for for the the Vietnamese government they created after that. So, I mean, yeah, I think it clearly is this issue of credibility. We don't want these people uh, in, you know, not just in Algeria, but really all over, you know, Guatemala, Iran, Egypt, you name it. We don't want them getting the idea that they can do what the Vietnamese did. And, you know, I think that's going to be one of the main reasons the Americans take over. They just assume the entire role. And it is, you know, when you keep looking back, and especially the the first stuff I wrote about it was about the U.S. military in Vietnam, you know, the guys who were actually, like, having the task of fighting the war. I mean, nobody was eager to do that. No Americans thought it was of of great value. They thought that strategically it was a mistake. They didn't like the idea of fighting uh, in a jungle environment against the Viet Minh, who they respected a great deal, actually respected Ho Chi Minh a great deal. Um, you know, all the studies that the Americans did, all the intelligence studies all came back and said, you know, how's a popular guy? If there's an election here, he'll win. So we are, you know, and, and the French, I mean, you know, nobody likes an empire, especially after World War II. Right. So obviously the, the Vietnamese, you know, uh, didn't have a great deal of affection for the French. Now there is a dynamic that's going to become important later because um, the, the Vietnam is mostly Buddhist, but there were, was a minority of Vietnamese Catholics and the Vietnamese Catholics almost all were part of the French, you know, government French administration, and and so that all, they, it also created this kind of ethnic, you know, kind of conflict as well. If you were pro-French, if you were a collaborator, you were there's a good chance you might be Catholic too, in a majority Buddhist country. So there's that dynamic is is going on as well, and so you know people are and the Viet Minh were fighting a traditional guerrilla war. They were, you know, I mean it was kind of small small scale attacks, but there were there were target assassinations. Of uh, you know people who were part of the the French administration, they went after Vietnamese officials more than French officials because you know that's the message you want to send right to the Vietnamese: don't collaborate with these guys. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is just like you know the French fear what you know an abandonment of Vietnam could do and the, the message it could send.
1: And then the Americans. Um, so I wanted to talk about something that uh, you had touched on earlier, which is. How to phrase this. So I, I think there's been a good talk about uh, the differing American motives, but essentially to cue and our viewers, so we have different parties of Americans related to this. Uh, you note in your book quite uh, powerfully that there were a lot of American military advisors who were opposed to Vietnam, who said this would be a debacle. And yet, even as military advisors were saying this, the actual politicians were pushing to go into Vietnam. So whereas the military advisors would look at Korea and say, look at how much this costs, look at all the bloodshed. On the other hand, there were politicians who were aiming to go in and probably taking the exact opposite message from the past few decades, particularly, I think, the idea of uh, what was that famous slogan, he lost China? Yeah, yeah, Who lost China. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: Lyndon Johnson later said that. he, he Johnson had a hyperbole, but he said, uh, Harry Truman's problems regarding China will be chicken shit <laughs> compared to what I have to deal with in Vietnam. So that's, I mean, that throughout the war that remained an issue.
1: So do you want to talk a little bit about the divide then between the military advisors yeah, and the um, politicians? It's interesting because um,
0: early on it's really kind of hard to find any Americans. Uh, who are really all that, you know, kind of enthused uh, about Vietnam. And it's always in the larger Cold War context. It has nothing to do with Vietnam because nobody cares. You know, I, I've heard before, and I, I never checked this up, but I, I've heard that in 1960 there were about a dozen Americans who could speak and read Vietnamese. I don't know if that's true or not, but, <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't matter if the number is correct. It's clear that that's, that's not a, a terribly important issue. But in the early 50s, um, there were a lot of American military advisors there. Watch, well, there were military advisors from in the 40s, and many of them were closely with Ho Chi Minh and, you know, essentially said, you know, we're fine with that. Um, there were a lot of Americans who said, Ho is not this dogmatic communist. You're portraying him. The funniest part is a lot of these civilians, and you're talking about like Dulles and Nixon and people like that, you know, are saying, well, you know, he's just going to be a puppet of the Chinese after the Chinese revolution, which is, if you know any history of Vietnam and all, that's insane. I mean, today in Vietnam, if the government wants to get people riled up, they just say China did something. You know, that's their go-to thing, you know, blame China. It's like, a, you know, in the 19th century, the United States talked about John Bull. The British are going to go into Texas, so we've got to go down there. We've got to take Texas from Mexico. I mean, that was a big, big thing, you know, like in, in the 1840s. They got people all, you know, terrified that the British were going to go in and, and occupy Texas, you know. Right. So in the same way, China was always kind of the way to get people. So the idea that the Chinese were going to come in there and tell the Vietnamese what to do and take control was ridiculous. Um, and the military officials, you know, who, who kind of analyzed this and studied it, you know, were, were really you know, adamantly against it. Um, the American ambassador uh, in, in uh, Saigon in the, in the early 50s was a, was a general, J. Lawton Collins, who was constantly going back to Eisenhower and telling him this is a horrible situation. Eisenhower wasn't terribly enthused about it. You had a couple people, I think John Foster Dulles especially, was the Secretary of State at the time, who had this you know massive insane view of the communist conspiracy they're everywhere and after things like the Truman Doctrine and then SC68 I mean that really does universalize it so if there is a, a, an alleged communist anywhere in the world you know that the United States has a duty to do something and I mean Vietnam that's not a hard hard call to make as the Indo-Chinese Communist Party you know they had a Politburo a lot of people when the war was fought wanted to sanitize the Vietnamese. Oh, it's a nationalist movement. Well it was, and it was a front, it absolutely was. And in the early days communists were a minority in it, you know, they you know but you know, it was a communist movement. It was a communist war for liber of national liberation, a communist revolution.
1: So you think that it was set in stone from Truman? You don't think that it was Kennedy and Johnson making No, out? I mean by that time there's so much momentum going on. Um I mean
0: yeah... At any point, yes, anybody, theoretically, anybody can step back, but that's not really the way it's done. Um, in the early 50s, you know, the United States is pouring all this money into the French effort, and in 1953, the French commander Henri Navarre has this kind of grand theory to end the war, the Navarre concept, which involves taking a bunch of French troops into a valley, Dien Bien Phu, right? And I mean, it, it's easy to make fun of him because it's, it's a dumb idea, but... If you know what the Vietnamese, the Viet did to to get to the top of that valley to lay siege, it's really amazing because it's actually really a tortuous hill, and you know, I mean, they were like you know breaking trees and they're pulling cannons up with pulleys and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was clearly a huge blunder, and so the Vietnamese laid siege to Dien Bien Phu, and you know the French surrendered in, in May of 1954. And um, again, you know the, the Vietnamese said, "Okay, we're independent," much like in 1945. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a, an international meeting uh, established, set up. It was already convened uh, in Geneva to deal with issues, in, including Vietnam, especially Vietnam. And, uh, and this is when uh, the Americans opposed the triumph of, of the Viet Minh, but the communist countries kind of went along with it, too. So that's when they cut Vietnam in half. Uh, the French, I think to their credit, actually realized that they're, they, they were dying. And so they began immediately to kind of decelerate and de-escalate and start to get troops out of there, I suspect because they understood that like, places like Algeria were, were a bigger issue at this point. You know, they lost. What are you going to do? So to that degree, I think they were way smarter than the Americans in understanding. You know, they made a, a much more, you know, decisive move in deciding to get out. But, uh, yeah, after Dien Bien Phu, um, I mean, clearly French credibility was, a, I'm sure, at a, probably at a, a post-war
1: low, post-Cold War low. Uh, but, it was only going to get worse with Algeria. Yeah, then, so. yeah, but I think
0: Algeria, I mean, I don't understand, I don't know, as my sense was always that Algeria was much worse. I think the loss of Algeria was, was worse than the loss of Indochina.
1: Right, and then yeah. not to get too much into yeah. Algeria, although I suppose we could, but the fact that there was state-sanctioned frequent torture, so I'm not, I think, after world war 2 people just kind of accepted that some atrocities would go, go yeah. on but but with algeria going on in the 60s that that caused such a an uproar but in any case so now we're actually getting to the point where uh france is out of the picture america comes in so one question which i think should be very obvious and perhaps uh this is my naivety kicking in but didn't the Americans realize that they would be seen as an imperialistic force if they took over?
0: Uh, n- not as much as you'd think. Really, um, there was clearly a sense, just kind of in the, in the abstract, that you know they're going to look upon us as this hostile foreign power. Direct references to the French were few and far between. Hmm. Uh, there were a couple of reports, like in the later fifties, which said you know the French. I forget who it was one of the marine. I don't know if it was a on or not, said, you know, look at what the French did. There's a good chance that'll happen to us. Um, but, you know, other than any of these kind of grand schematic ideas about, you know, like how, you know, colonialists look upon conquering countries coming in, not as much as you'd think. I mean, there was very little sense that, you know, we're just replacing the French. I saw it a few times, but not much. Um, actually, one of the, the one thing that, that, that I still, you know, gets to me today, in 1965, I'm jumping way ahead, William Westmoreland, who's considered the biggest hawk of the war, you know. But even Westmoreland understood that. He wrote this amazing memo in early 1965 before the U.S. sent combat troops in, and he was basically against it. He said, you know, if we do this, we're going to be bogged down. And it was a great line, which is almost verbatim. Until, like the French, we will be occupying an essentially hostile foreign country. So in 1965, William Westmoreland, you know, kind of the architect of the war, the guy whose like historical reputation is like horrible, even understood that. But I think by that time, even the military guys and the critics, and there were still plenty of them, understood the decision had been made. You know, People you know, above them on the food chain were going to go and, and not allow Vietnam to be communist. And at this point, I mean, Eisenhower was on board. Dulles really, I think, is, is a stronger character. But within the diplomatic community, there's a general idea. And within the business community, there's a general idea. Okay, we can't let, it's not even Vietnam. We can't let these countries do this, right? It just so happens to be Vietnam in this particular case. But I mean, you know, a year before the uh, N. B. N. Fu, the United States had overthrown Mossadegh. the same year as the N. B. N. Fu, the United States was overthrowing Arbenz. And, you know, and the and the British and the French are trying to hold on to whatever vestiges of their their colonies they have left. So um, there is a great deal of of, of, uh, of uh, uh, there are a great deal of arguments in the United States. Another thing I'd mentioned a little bit earlier about um, uh, the the French collaborators being Catholic Um, When, in 1954, at Geneva, the United States cut Vietnam in half, right? The northern half is essentially, you know, that's Ho Chi Minh's territory. That's where his strength is. That's where he was born. And it's more industrialized, too. So below below the 17th parallel, the United States, I I call it inventing a country. One of my students wrote a book called Inventing Vietnam in the sense, like, they physically had to invent it. Hmm. And they had to go looking for somebody to run the place because every Vietnamese uh, uh, who had any kind of national credibility or national popularity was either part of the adult Chinese Communist Party or part of this front, the Viet Minh Front. So even if they weren't communists, they, <laughs> they didn't qualify for the U.S. because they were part of this front, which was clearly you know, led by the communists. So they found this guy, uh, Neo Dinh Diem. And um, one of the things that's striking about Diem is that uh, he was a devout Catholic. And he came to the United States, and the reason he became well-known is because he buddied up with people like Francis Cardinal Spellman, and Mike Mansfield and John Kennedy and various Catholic officials and one of the one of his brothers was like the emissary to the Vatican hmm. uh, from uh, Huey. so um, because of that the United States uses this guy because he's he's a known product he has this reputation with the French although the French couldn't stand him he couldn't stand the French <laughs> and uh, and he's Catholic so you know they're they're not really concerned so the United States puts this guy in, and his family in charge. And I mean, he barely survived because a lot of American officials, including the ambassador, wanted to get rid of him from the start. But he kind of pulled it together and defeated his various rivals. And so the United States is, is kind of stuck with him. One New York Times reporter said American policy was sink or swim with no Denzil <laughs> So, but France, by that time, I mean, made a fairly quick getaway. You know, they—I think by 1956—they had everything was gone. You know, they had washed their hands of it. And like I said, the Americans, to a surprising degree, never really kind of brought that up. I think, you know, and again, they're, they're still in this euphoria of World War II. I mean, if you defeat the Nazis, you, why are you worried about this ragtag Viet Minh group? Right. You know, and, you know, the French, you know, a lot of it is disdain. Yeah, well, the French had problems, but they're the French, and what do you expect? And, you know, blah, 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 Vichy, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um... So the Americans kind of assumed the mantle. I mean, they they were aware, they were clearly aware that, you know, they were not popular, they were not welcome there, and that they would have to use some type of coercion until at least they got this government together, which really never happened.
1: So on that note then, did the United States learn anything from the French occupation, aside oh, from maybe no. don't go into a valley? No. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Quezon, you know,
0: was a, was a huge siege to... Uh, <laughs> not really. Um, it's funny because the U.S. military has a, 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 a very profound sense of history. They do historical studies more than any any government group anybody I've ever seen actually. They have after action reports, and I mean everything. But on a big issue like that, um, surprisingly, not really. There, there really wasn't this you know sense of let's study what they did or. I mean, I don't think I ever saw a report, you know, like making a comparison or, or anything like that. <clears throat> I mean, there was clearly um, contact and communication during the war, during the first Indochina War between the Americans and the French. But after like 1955, I don't even see any evidence of that—that that they're even talking to these folks. I think the French wanted to get out. The Americans thought, you know, well, you guys, you know, you, you, we can't trust you to deal with this anyway. No wonder you—you you, you failed. We'll take it. We'll take it from here. Hmm. Um, and uh, and then they kind of went their own way and did pretty much a lot of the same stuff the French did too. They kind of took this thing that had failed, and I think the assumption was well it failed because it was the French, not the Americans. We we know how to do these things. In fact, the, the outcome was virtually identical.
1: So you made the point both in your book and now that before uh, the United States took over the war that the fact that the France was fighting this war was a point of contention between the United States and France because the United States wanted France out, but then the script gets flipped. Yeah. Then it's France that wants the United States out. Can you talk about how that led to rupture?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it, it is. I That's a great phrase, it flipped the script, because now the French think the Americans are wasting their time there when there are bigger issues to deal with, including Europe, right? Um so, yeah, the, 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 the Americans, you know, assume this mantle. And, I mean, the U.S., uh, there is a huge difference because, you know, the French had, I forget whatever those numbers I just told you. They had, there were a lot of French expeditionary forces, French troops. And like that. The Americans didn't do that. They just pumped money in to create all these Vietnamese institutions. I mean, by the mid-60s, the, the southern Vietnamese army, the ARVN, was like the third or fourth biggest army in the world. Mm. Well, over a million, a million, way over a million troops. So the Americans did were very different in that regard. They thought, well, we can do it by proxy. We don't need to send our own people in there. You know, and I think, I, I don't know what, Fre- I know French opinion was, was t- had turned against Indochina. I've read, I've read a little bit about that. But I don't know if that's just because, you know, uh, to a lot, uh, quite often, at least in the United States, um, people turned against the war because Americans were being killed. And I don't know if that's the case in France where they could kind of personalize it. Our, you know, our boys are being killed in Vietnam. So I don't know if it was that, or I know, you know, the French, well, the French left actually for a long time, kind of supported it, and they supported Algeria as well, various segments, and I'm not an expert at that, so I can't, you know, don't ask me more than that. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, once the French were out, if they just kind of washed it from their memory, uh, Indochina, did they do that? I mean, was there, did it come up much after that, or?
1: I don't, I, if I had to take a guess, so based on what I've read, it seems like, As soon as Indochina was out, now you have this crisis of Algeria, and that's so much more important because you have a million civilians that live in Algeria that pretty much all had to flee the Pied Noir. Not only that, but of course you have torture, there's FLN terrorism within France itself, bombings that take place, so I think... You know, one uh, one war just got uh, overshadowed the other. It's kind yeah. of, it kind of feels a little bit like uh, today with the United States. Here you have Iraq versus Afghanistan, where Iraq is just feels so much bigger. You yeah. know, the people for a long time just forgot about Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, not to not to talk too much about contemporary no, no, issues.
0: Fine. I mean, you know, I've read like you know just kind of generic general stuff about France and the United States and the Cold War, and yeah, really after the mid 50s you know if you look at the index that's where Vietnam stops and then they start talking about Algeria and these other issues you know in the 60s especially with things like you know the uh, multilateral force and nuclear weapons which is becoming I mean, you know Eisenhower doesn't want France to develop its own nuclear weapons and so he and de Gaulle are butting heads when, when did de Gaulle come back in 1958 I think um so it's just not you know I, right you know so he and Eisenhower I mean immediately de Gaulle wanted independent French nuclear force and the Americans are like oh hell no you know and then, uh, you know, one of the Americans wanted to create a multilateral force, a multilateral NATO force, because de Gaulle, again, was leading this critique of the, you know, the Americans have, you know, they're, they're taking over to Europe. It's their troops. It's their airplanes. You know, we, we want control of it. And uh, so they proposed a multilateral force, which would have included Germany. So you can imagine how well that went over right. in Paris. And, so, and you know, when there, was always, there was always this bickering over Germany. You know, and the United States saw Germany as, as the linchpin of Europe. Because it kind of was, right? Yeah. And rebuilding Germany was absolutely essential, you know, to to the entire European economy. And there was always bickering between the Americans and the French over that. I mean, France. I don't think it was quite as bad as Versailles, where they wanted to just destroy Germany. But I mean, there was clearly, you know, and the Soviet Union the same way. I mean, there's there's a very healthy. Uh, concerned about what Germany might do going forward, right. right? They both have and endured it: 1871, 1914, you know, 1941. So, um, so the Americans, you know, clearly had issues with the French. I don't have any sense the French really cared about Vietnam. They just kind of saw it in the rearview mirror, and then, like you said, they were dealing with uh, well, Suez, Algeria, and then these bigger Europe European issues: the Common Market, nuclear weapons, uh, NATO. <clears throat> multilateral force, all this kind of stuff. And essentially, I mean, De Gaulle and Kennedy and Johnson are butting heads the whole time. There's there's not a great deal of love between between them, as you can imagine.
1: So I should note, you were very close. It was 1959 oh, okay. to 69, although I guess you could say that you were right because he won the election in okay. 1958. Okay. So we'll, we'll give you that. <laughs> but on that note, I did want to ask you, How much of tensions between the U.S. and France was solely due to the personality of Charles de Gaulle? Now, I'm not necessarily an expert on de Gaulle. One thing I know, though, is that obviously de Gaulle had this sense of France as this great power that he wanted to restore, and he was also personally slighted pretty often during World War II. In fact, the Americans and the British didn't want to invite France to the table when they were signing the peace treaty with Germany, and essentially de Gaulle had to kick his way through the door uh, symbolically in order to get there. Um, So how much of this tension between the U.S. and France was just de Gaulle, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm
0: I'm not a... A psychologist I've read some stuff on that um, I mean clearly he has this view this you know view of France and its glory and you know restoring it to his glory and you know the Americans just think that's nuts you know the world has changed um, and you know Kennedy's not exactly a modest guy and then LBJ and De Gaulle. I've, I've often laughed about that because they you know you talk about the kind of doppelganger right right I mean they're both incredibly egotistical guys who you know don't hesitate to, to look you in the face and tell you what they think and so, um, I mean, I think that clearly, you know, uh, made it more difficult because you have two people who have this vision, you know, of, of, of grandeur, right? And I think, you know, the U.S. was a lot more, at that time, at least credible because they had come out of World War II. And, and you know, I, I'm sure De Gaulle was just appalled by this kind of American, you know, condescension, right? You know, you guys, you know, yeah, you had your day. but. You know, I never heard any specific reference to you know what about Vichy, but I'm sure that everybody you know you don't have to be a genius to figure out that's hanging over everybody's head. Um, so yeah, there there was clearly a great deal of tension. I know you know Eisenhower didn't, all didn't get along either, uh, and I don't know what you know. I mean in World War II, I'm sure they had contact, so it could be you know Eisenhower was ahead of the European theater, so it could have been a vestige of that. I I don't know that much about uh, uh, that relationship. But, you know, as soon as De Gaulle talked about, you know, developing a nuclear force and stuff, the U.S. shut it down immediately. I was like, absolutely not, hmm. you know. And, and there was a great deal of tension over kind of rebuilding Germany, you know, allowing Germany into NATO and letting Germany have its own nuclear, you know, not nuclear force, but its own army, its own weapon, you know. I mean, and, and France and the United States were always at, at loggerheads over that. And, you know, with Britain, I think the, the issues were more economic. Um, you know, the the, the the pound versus the franc and stuff like that, or or uh, European in the or Britain allowing Britain into the European Market, but um, yeah, De Gaulle and Johnson—they I mean, clearly uh, didn't didn't get along. And as the '60s went on, I mean, the as the '60s went on, the French became a lot more um, critical of the U.S. and Vietnam. Essentially, like you're 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 tanking the global. I, mean, I think it was more the economy than Europe. I think, you know, the, the, the Cold War in Europe had basically reached an equilibrium. Nobody was really concerned the Soviet Union was going to come in and try to take over Italy and France and Greece or anything like that. But I think it was more the, the, that the American commitment to, to, to Vietnam was really kind of causing immense problem in the global economy and the Bretton Woods system. And De Gaulle, early on, wanted to get out. I mean, the, especially the, that, you know, the fixed, the fixed uh, the, you know, everything's pegged to the dollar at this fixed rate and Gaulle hated that. I mean, there were various times where he wanted to devalue the franc and just get out of Retton Woods altogether. Uh, you know, at one point he said, uh, the Americans were trying to take over French industry, take over the French economy because I don't want to go into the detail of it. It's boring as hell, but you know, because there was a fixed system, you know, the dollar was always pegged to all these other currencies at the price of gold. So in the United States, there was a great deal of inflation. So, you know, the, when the French and everybody else are, are buying stuff, they're paying a lot more for it because these dollars aren't worth much anymore. Mm. So um, basically, De Gaulle said, you know, you, American inflation. You know, Americans are using inflation to take over French industry. So there's a great deal of, of stress and pressure there. And that really blows up around 1967, 1968. I, I have here, I showed you earlier, this Time magazine cover from, uh, what is it, November 29th, 1968. Uh, War money crisis, and there's a picture of uh, De Gaulle with this you know, kind of broken Frank uh, on the cover, and so um, yeah, that becomes a real issue uh, in that period. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know how much personality plays into it, but it's clear at that time that I think both Johnson and De Gaulle really can't stand each other by that time, and it's certainly not making things easier.
1: So, was there ever a point of? if not reconciliation, at least where things improved between the United States and France uh, during the Cold War? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, even though Mitterrand was a socialist and
0: Reagan was obviously very different, I mean, you know, there was kind of, I think, a stability in in French relations. I mean, I would say, you know, in the more recent period, uh, you know, Bill Clinton and Obama where. You know, they portrayed, they presented themselves as different types of Americans, right? Nixon was considered, you know, people in France looked at Nixon like people in America looked at Nixon at the end. And Reagan, you know, was kind of looked upon with great suspicion because, you know, he had these kind of, he seemed reckless with nuclear weapons and things like that. But I think, you know, especially when he started talking to Gorbachev and you had these, these, these agreements on intermediate missiles and stuff like that, um, I think the U.S. relationship with, with all of Europe, including, including Mithran, uh, who I believe was still in power in, in, that, in the late 80s, uh, uh, did improve. And um, you know, uh, it was actually I think and, you know my memory may be fading, but it seems to me that you know before nine one one, before you know France wouldn't you know uh, agree to the uh, the American attack on Iraq, things were were fairly solid. Uh, you know the first Gulf War um, went to the UN and they got the votes, so France voted to in nineteen ninety one. But you know after I mean Vietnam, yeah, clearly clearly wasn't great, and then. I mean, in 1971, Nixon just wiped out the entire Bretton Woods system. Uh, De Gaulle's gone by then anyway. But, um, you know, it was funny because in the 70s, Henry Kissinger basically said, you know, our goal now is to restore Europe. I think he said 1971 is going to be the year of Europe. So, you know, he made a lot of tra- trips to, to London and to to, to Bonn and to, and to Paris to try to kind of start to repair these relationships, which Vietnam had really done. I mean, Vietnam was, you know, it's 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 bad. For a lot of reasons right you know in the united states it creates this you know this this turmoil internally Fifty eight thousand americans were killed but it had a massive economic impact in, in the entire global stage because the you know, vietnam war began at a time where the, the global economy was like, going gangbusters it was heated, heated up everything was great you know and then all of a sudden boom you take all this money away from these other projects and you start spending it on vietnam and then because of that you start running up these deficits and people start to cash in their gold and um you know, it's a famous story. Because during the There was a, a gold crisis in early 1968. De Gaulle sent it, and Air France, you know, usually when you make transactions, they're just like, you know, De Gaulle sent an Air France plane to, to the United States to literally get the physical gold and bring it back. <laughs> so I think that was kind of when you talked about the personal stuff. It was a way of, you know, kind of flipping them off. So he actually wanted, he wanted the gold, you know, when he, when he cashed in the dollars, wow. not just a credit. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, But after that, I I do think things, you know, kind of, kind of improved and, um, you know, I I don't know, I mean, my sense of French politics is that, especially after the Soviet Union fell apart, I mean, that affected the the global left, you know, everywhere. I mean, it did it in Italy, it did it in France. So, you know, my assumption there is that the left became less kind of left, you know, after the Soviet Union fell apart. And, uh, um, and so you have these, these governments now, which, you know whether socialist or or uh, Republican or centrist or whatever, we're actually pretty similar, mm. and the Americans, you know, seem to get along. You know, it's, it's an age of globalization. There was plenty of profit and money to be made. Uh, there was, you know, 2003, the whole kind of freedom fries. You know, you know, uh, what was it. Uh, Surrender monkeys, or whatever you know, people call them cheese eating surrender, surrender monkeys. monkeys. Yeah. yeah,
1: another Simpsons reference. Yeah,
0: but I think after that, you know, I don't, I, I think once Iraq started going badly, the Americans kind of, you know, kind of bailed out on the whole French thing, you know. And they're still like, you know, Notre Dame, this outpouring in the United States is still a huge area for American tourism and, um, so yeah I, I think there's generally a, a fairly decent uh, rapport but vietnam clearly was a huge problem hmm. you know, massive problem even after the french got out because you know like you said they, the, the tables were turned and now it's france telling the united states get the hell out of there it's, it's not that important you're you're screwing up the global economy right
1: yeah. uh thank you very much professor bazanko this has been uh, incredibly enlightening Uh, Do you have any final words for our listeners?
0: Thank you, and um, congratulations on, you know, kind of uh, getting this going and getting more and more people interested in it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, knowing more about history ultimately is going to help us, but it it can't make things worse because we clearly live in in a global, you know, system now where... You know, people say everything is fake news, and people can be shown evidence, and they just didn't dismiss it and ignore it. So, you know, talking about these things is really important to kind of let people know that there are people out there who, who study this and who analyze it, and it's not just a meme, you know, on Facebook. So, I, I'm, you know, what you're doing is really great. And so, you know, congratulations right. on taking off.
1: Fantastic! I'll make that as my tagline. This podcast at least can't do any worse. All right, thank you. <laughs> All right, take care. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.